Programming Throwdown, episode 102, Bayesian Thinking with Max Squire. Take it away, Jason. Hey, everybody. So this is, uh, is going to be an awesome episode. I know so many people have asked for uh, more content on AI and on machine learning. And today we have Max Sklar, who's an engineer at Foursquare's Innovation Lab, uh, who's going to talk to us about Bayesian thinking, Bayesian inference, and, and this whole universe. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I love talking about this stuff. So, uh, so let's get into it. I'm excited. Cool. Awesome. How are you doing? How are you handling the COVID situation? Um, well, uh, as reasonably as one can expect, I guess, you know, every week on the podcast, people can hear my mood going up and down and <laughs> have uh, commented as such. Uh, but uh, I also experience uh, mood swings. There's something about, uh, you know, being in the same place for everything that that causes you to have these ups and downs. Because, yeah, it seems to be a universal thing. I, I feel like I, I was mentioning this to someone yesterday. Like, you, do you ever like go through your Apple photos or, or Google photos or whatever and, uh, you know, just go through your past, like the last five years, 10 years and just scroll? I'm like, what's it going to be like scrolling through these months? It's like all of a sudden I'm living my life and then, oh, it's a bunch of pictures in my room and then a bunch of pictures of sirens going by and then more pictures <laughs> yeah. of my room, then a bunch of wires. And my, I'm like, oh, let's skip this. Let's skip this part. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's so true. Yeah. When what, what, what I heard the other day, which was really resonated, was that um, 2020 is kind of like uh, when you get bored at SimCity and you just turn on all the disasters at once. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of like what things have degenerated to. It's it's funny. I, I read like a full review of uh, one of the things that um, I wasted my time on during during this pandemic, which unfortunately I feel like I'm not alone when I feel like I could be getting so much done, but I wasted so much time was watching like a review of the original SimCity on uh, on YouTube. So oh, nice. <laughs> I found out I was I was reading an article that um, there's a game called Sim Refinery that uh, Maxis made, uh, I think, for Chevron and further employees. And someone was able to get a copy of it, and uh, you can actually you can actually download it and play it in an emulator. I haven't tried it yet. Cool. So the the um um so the the topic is something that you know we need to you know really attack kind of from the surface because there's 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 sort of a lot of layers to it, and and so I feel like maybe one good way to you know get started on it is just to talk a little bit about uncertainty. I mean there's 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 a lot of challenges uh you know everyone knows software at least most software is deterministic you say one plus one and you expect it to be two every time um but but when you're doing anything from you're trying to make some kind of prediction or you're getting data from some analog device or some sensor the world around you or even just behaviors of people is 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 full of uncertainty and just in general, like how do people deal with that kind of stuff when they're writing code in, in, in this very rigid way? Yeah, well, one one thing that I've learned even over the past couple of years as I've been doing this for many years is how deep the rabbit hole goes in terms of the different kinds of uncertainty and risk and probability and the different, you know, the different definitions around it. Like people don't even agree on what uncertainty means or, or what what 
what what probability means. Um, I, I kind of tend to take the subjective view that it's sort of your degree of belief that uh, something is true. But then there are the cases where, you know, hey, we're at a casino and or we're flipping a coin and I know reasonably well, you know, what the probability is. Everybody agrees that like a coin flip is is 50 percent and a, and the die roll is a six, a six, a six, et cetera. Um, but in the real world, it's not like that. You, you're, you often have cases where, uh, you know, you, you don't even know what, you know, the, it's sort of a, a subjective on what the probability is of certain events. And the best you could do is try to estimate it or try to figure out, okay, what are the different possibilities that I want to consider here? And that's where Bayesian inference really shines. So I think the first step is to just it's a dive into a problem and maybe it'll help to go over some examples and try to figure out, you know, what type of uncertainty am I dealing with uh, exactly? And kind of having that discussion with your team is usually very fruitful. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I mean, I think one of the, one way that sort of has both of those, um, you know, probability and uncertainty in one is, is the, is the classic multi-arm bandit, which is this idea where, um, you know, imagine you go to Las Vegas and, and imagine now, you know, in, in the real world, you know, slot machines are highly regulated. And so you can go to any casino and I think you could even look up the probabilities. They're all posted publicly. But but, you know, let's suspend belief on that for a moment um, and just assume that every hotel had their own rules. Maybe some hotels are brand new and so they make the slot machines really generous. Some of them are very strict, um, but you don't know what any of those probabilities are. And so you you have, you know, uh, maybe, uh, you know, a thousand dollars worth of quarters in your pocket and uh, you or in a bucket or something. And you want to uh, basically make as much money as possible. And so you, you're kind of torn because you don't you don't know any of the information, um, but you don't want to wait, waste a lot of money finding out either. You want to quickly kind of dial that in and then and then and then choose the best slot machine for the rest of the day. And so you can see how you're sort of balancing uh, you know, reducing uncertainty and, and, you know, becoming more certain about your world with, with, uh, in this case, I guess, profit. Yeah, I, exactly. And another, uh, one of the things that I, I like to talk about is what, you know, sometimes you talk about, okay, w- what's the implications in terms of building a machine learning model, you know, at, at work? But sometimes there's also the question of what does this mean for my everyday life? And the multi-arm bandit example is the question of well, what is the cost of getting information? And, Oftentimes, we don't consider what the cost of getting information to get the right answer is uh, because it's not zero. And so people often either go into rabbit holes and try to get as much information as possible when and it kind of freezes them in place, or people will throw up their hands and just make a decision because they don't know. But taking a second to think about you know, what's the cost of getting information and what does that get me uh, is another way to kind of dig into a problem. Yeah, yeah, totally makes sense. Yeah. And so, you know, imagine, you know, if you're writing, um, if, if you're writing something that's going to do any kind of forecasting, you're invariably going to have some type of probability and then some type of uncertainty around that. So, I mean, this is something that I think really gets neglected in, in a lot of these kind of coding boot camps or these tutorials online. Um, like if you've seen the show Silicon Valley, where, where, sure. um, I, I have not seen the last season, but uh, you can spoil me if you want. Oh, you know, I haven't either. So we're both in the same boat. Oh, okay. We're both in the same boat. So Patrick, try not to spoil it for us. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, 
but but basically this, the the person I think Gian makes makes a, a hot dog not hot dog app, right? Right. And so uh, just taking that example, uh, you know, if you build a model to do that, it's not going to say thumbs up or thumbs down. It's going to give you a probability. And um, if you build a Bayesian model, it's also going to give you a distribution, which we can which we can talk about. Um, yeah. But uh, but you have to then you know turn that into an action. So so that really is context dependent. So for example, you know maybe the hot dog not hot dog app. You should only say hot dog if it's really confident um, because you're going to notify someone or send an email and you really don't want to be wrong. But then on the flip side, imagine you know something a little more serious like you're doing cancer screening. Well, maybe if you're 10% sure, you should say yes, because yes means running an additional test, right? And so, so you really can't, um, you can't do anything in machine learning without, you know, dealing with probability and, and the sort of philosophy or economics of whatever you're trying to build and, and trying to marry those two together. Yeah. Oftentimes you're ultimately after making a decision. But you don't want to just go right away to the yes or no. You want to come up with the with the probability or the distribution and then use that to help make the decision. So kind of breaking it up into two parts. If I could give an example uh, from my work that uh, this is – we'll probably bring this up again. But this is sort of um, – this example, it might not be the most fun example, uh, but it's it's definitely one of my favorites because it is – it, it just one of the projects that I've done that just brought so much value, which was in, in ad attribution. That was a product I worked on for Foursquare a few years ago. Um, a lot of people, you know, in data science, are, you're going to run into attribution at some point in your life trying to figure out whether ads work or not. Uh, big data problem. Uh, you know, lots of people trying to solve it. Um, and Foursquare was kind of we were trying to figure out whether people whether ads were driving people into stores and we had some visit data and we had some data on who saw the ads and it was really hard to untangle what the uh, what the clients were asking for because they wanted to know lift they wanted to know you know okay what uh, how what percent more likely is someone to visit one of my stores if I give them the ad, an ad is it ten percent is it twenty percent is it five percent um, and no one asked for a probability distribution over that they just wanted a number an exact number. And then they wanted to tell us either an exact number or we don't have enough information to say. And uh, originally, the team was kind of just taking that as, at face value, being like, OK, let's try to let's try to just calculate this number. But it led to so many problems with, um, you know, how how accurate do we know? How, how accurate is this number? Uh, you know, w- when can we uh, report it? When can we not report it? And then to untangle that. We took a step back and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. We don't know what the lift value is for an ad, but let's try to turn this into a Bayesian model. And we could talk about like, I, I don't know if we want to kind of go and be- dive into like the intro to Bayesian theory, maybe after this. But we said, instead of talking about what is the lift of an ad, let's say, hey, we don't know what the lift of an ad is, but there's some uncertainty around it. There's it could be anything. And then as and we have some probability distribution there. And then as we gather more and more data, we update our probability distribution and it gets taller and skinnier over time. And then we could come up with like a, a confidence range uh, or sort of a Bayesian confidence range, which is, um, you know, hey, you know, the, the, your lift is somewhere in there. And then we could use that to help the clients make decisions. And it's sort of um, even though some clients didn't understand what we were doing, it's sort of 
made it a lot easier on the engineering and, and stats side where we could be like, okay, we now all agree on what we're doing and what we're doing makes sense. And it was just amazing to see how it just detangled a lot of our issues. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I think you touch on a lot of things there, so we'll try and unpack that. I mean, one is, you know, I think probability distributions have to be one of the most foreign things, uh, if, let's say yeah. foreign entry level things in, in mathematics, right? Because, I mean, there's a lot of things that, you know, string theory, there's a lot of things that are very complicated, but, but I would say PDFs are probably one of the things that they're fundamental, foundational, but they're also like really abstract and complicated. Um, yeah, can you take a crack at sort of explaining what a probability density function is to folks out there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess one one thing you could start with is if uh, if a PDF is blowing your mind, why not just start with the discrete case? Because um, and I find this too sometimes when I'm dealing with continuous data, if I think about it in a discrete way, it's it's a lot easier to start. So just think of what a regular probability distribution is. You have a number of um, you have a number of potential events. Uh, in the case of Bayesian inference, you're usually talking about uh, several hypotheses that you're trying to decide. Okay, which which one of these is the is the true one? Uh, sometimes you're trying to figure out, you know, trying to make a prediction which one of these ten things is going to happen. And so when you have a kind of discrete probability space or a finite probability space, uh, you can kind of say, okay, this is what it, it's just going to be a bunch of numbers that add up to one, uh, right? So mm-hmm. each each things have have a probability, and then you know you could update those values as more data comes in. A, uh, a PDF is a little more complicated because it's it's continuous data. So instead of having it on, let's say, 10 possibilities or 30 possibilities or, or, or two possibilities, actually, a lot of times it's two possibilities, you're dealing with a space that it's like, okay, this is a number. This is like a real number. In the case of attribution, we're trying to find the ad lift. This is a, a positive number. Uh, greater than zero. It's uh, where uh, usually it's greater than one because one means that the ad was not effective. Uh, so although there are exceptions to that. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's um, it's n- now you don't have uh, you don't have some uh, a bunch of numbers that like a bunch of values that add to one. You have a continuous space that if you know calculus, it integrates to one. Um, you can kind of break up the continuous space in different ways. You could break it up into two sections like, hey, I could bucket it. What's the chance it's, you know, greater than five or less than five? Well, both of those have to add to one. But, you know, essentially, you're just searching a space of numbers. And you could even make it more complicated than numbers still. You could make it into, you know, <laughs> R2, R3, uh, uh, you know, a, a space of, uh, of vectors. But then that gets even more abstract. So depending on I, – I, I'm pretty sure you probably have listeners who are comfortable with levels of abstraction uh, – on a, on a high level and, and not so much, but, you know, um, essentially you're just trying to figure out the relative probability of different possibilities. That's the, all of this stuff is trying to, uh, answer that one question. And I, and then, and, and yeah, you know, it's your hypo. Yeah. It's, it's your, depending on how complicated you want your hypothesis space to be. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Yeah, you basically, you have this function, and when the function is high, like you could imagine in your mind just just any type of function you'd you know graph on your graphing calculator or something. Right. And when that function is high, um, you know has a high y value, then for those values of x, they're just more likely. Um, and yeah. when the function is low, those values are just really unlikely. So if you imagine like a coin toss, um, 
and and you're you're getting the PDF of this of this coin. Uh, you know, it could be you toss the coin three times and get three heads. It's possible, but it's much it's much more likely that you're going to get at least one tails. And so yeah. you could imagine, you know, the Y at one third being being higher than the Y at zero. But yeah, the, the thing is really weird is, as you said, you know, if you pick a single point, it actually doesn't really mean anything. It's really just when you integrate over a range, because, for example, yeah, yeah like you never in the continuous phase, like you never have exactly 33, you know, point three, three, three. It's always going to be there's always going to be some uncertainty there. And so you have to deal in terms of these of these ranges. And I yeah. And so it's kind of more like a pie chart that's been kind of unrolled in a sense. Yeah, I, there are a number of different ways of looking at it. Another one I think of it is relative uh, probabilities. Uh, like let's suppose you have just a standard Gaussian function that peaks at, at zero. Right. So the, the zero value is the highest probability. Um, but any single number has a probability of zero of landing on exactly that number. But you can actually compare, hey, what's the chance of me landing on zero versus the chance of me landing on one? And you can kind of compare relatively what those two are, even though they're both zero, which is kind of mind blowing until you're comfortable with calculus and differentials and all that. Um, yeah, but um, sometimes you could just understand what the graph means, like, hey, I'm going to be somewhere under this graph, and so I'm much more likely to be in the high sections than the low sections. And that's sort of where my mind goes when I read a simple PDF. And then every once in a while, I want to get into, like, really abstract, like, what's going on here? And, I, you know, sometimes I do read into this stuff. I read into, like, topology and um, and, and measure theory, and yep, you could really get theory. into yeah, you could get into like some really abstract. I was reading the other day about, uh, I can't believe I'm, I'm bringing this up. <laughs> I was reading the other day about something called pointless topology. And it's this idea that, um, in a, in a, in a space like real numbers, uh, the, uh, a point is not the fu- uh, fundamental unit. You actually can only talk about, you know, uh, places of finite extent. So you have to be able to move a little bit to the right and a little bit to the left. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, and think about it in terms of like uh, electricity. Like if you're doing, if you're an electrician, like you never say, okay, exactly 120.0000 volts is coming out of this socket. Like, like no house has that kind of tolerance. Yeah. And so you're always thinking about things in terms of tolerance. And so you're always thinking about things in terms of hopefully small ranges of numbers. Yeah, and the, and the the scary thing is is oftentimes the infinite precision number really has no meaning, you know, because what does it mean to if, if I said there was 120 volts, uh, but it was you know zeros all the way down exactly? Like, is that even possible? If you go deep down into like quantum physics, oftentimes the numbers that you you're talking about stop having meaning a- anymore. Yep. It's uh, one example that I give is like how many water molecules are in the Atlantic Ocean could probably come up with a reasonable estimate to that. But is there an exact integer that represents that that value? Uh, probably not. No. And I mean, it, with with uh, evaporation and everything, you'd yeah, never exactly. be able to count it. So, yeah. so another thing that that I think, you know, talking about Bayesian and, and statistics really helps people is with with generative, let's say models, but even more generically generative systems. Right. I mean, I think when people write, for example, when I write unit tests, 
Um, I typically, you know, I, ideally I want to make a unit test that's generative. So for example, um, so for example, let's say I write my own sort. Um, maybe, you know, I could have a unit test where I take some, some canonical inputs. I know what the sorted outputs are and, uh, you know, I, I run my sort and then I make sure it matches. But, you know, another way to do that would be to, uh, have a, have a validation Function, right? So, so I have, let's say, the STL quicksort, which I can't use for whatever reason, but I have it. Um, and my unit test could be, you know, generate some data, run the STL sort, run my new sort, and maybe my new one's faster. You know, that could be part of the test. Um, and then, and then compare the results, right? So that's just an example of this sort of generative, um, unit test. So some people hate that idea or they tell you you need to fix the random seed and there's kind of a whole rabbit hole there, but, but but you know you can imagine a lot of testing as being sort of generative and uh, and I think to to really understand Bayesian um, you know inference and how to build these Bayesian models you have to think in terms of you know you have some phenomena what generated that phenomena and can I uh, you know artificially how much of that phenomena can I generate artificially um, and so you know people who want to do let's say game design. Uh, you will have to deal with this kind of thing. Um, and so in general, it's really good for really any engineer to know how to build sort of a generative system to model some problem. Yeah, uh, a couple of points on that. Uh, first of all, uh, the 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 idea that the, the first step in kind of a Bayesian inference is once you've defined the problem, I guess I would say that's the first step is then you have to figure out what your hypothesis space is. You know, what are what is what are the possible mechanisms uh, that I'm going to consider that could have generated uh, the data that I'm seeing or that I'm about to see. And um, one of the well, I guess you could say it's like a pitfall of Bayesian uh, thinking or Bayesian analysis is that there is no guarantee that. Um, you know, one of the hypotheses that you come up with is is true or that works particularly well. Um, and so that's why you often need to throw in like a dummy hypothesis and say, oh, this is actually just random data uh, or something like that. Um, yeah. And then if that beats everything, then, you know, OK, I either it either is random or I, I don't understand the mechanism. Um, and so and I know we're talking kind of a- abstractly here, but um, if we can go back to. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to get, trying to figure out where, where we were in the conversation. If we go back into the unit test, like that's, that's always very interesting. Like I remember like writing, writing a unit test for the sword is one thing. Like I've written some to check if a, if a logistic regression is, is coming up with the right answer. And, um, it's, it's often, um, you often have to kind of tell the rest of the organization, ugh, my unit tests run differently. I either have to set the random number generator in stone, in which case I don't know if I'm necessarily getting what I want. My unit tests pass 95% of the time, but the other 5% it doesn't pass. So mm-hmm. <laughs> every once in a while when you're doing this stuff, you you run into problems with the organization with uh, with unit tests where I don't know necessarily know the answer other than uh, in in some cases I just have unit tests that I run offline uh, that aren't part of our automated testing uh, in whenever I change something that's probabilistic. Yeah, yeah, totally makes sense. Yeah, I mean, and this is true in general is, is you know, if you have a generative system, especially one that's, let's say, generating data for a test, there's always going to be that one chance that it generates like really degenerate data, like maybe yeah. all the X's are the same. I mean, that that could happen one out of 
you know, uh, a billion times or a million times. And and there are unit test systems that are going to run your test a million times, maybe even a million right. times a day. So yeah. so that could happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It happens all the time. One yeah, in a million, so, one in a million. Uh, I'm not surprised by one in a million things anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw something. This is a, a pretty old uh, quote, but it was from the lady who is the head of security at Twitter uh, many years ago, and she basically said something to the effect of, "Yeah, if there's a if there's a one in a million chance that it happens, you know, twenty times an hour at on Twitter or something like that." Yeah. Hey, guys, we're going to take a little break to talk about University of California, Irvine's Division of Continuing Education. So this is a pretty cool program. They have a variety of different um, kind of certificates that you could acquire. They have things like Python, they have data science, they have machine learning. And these are things where, you know, if you didn't necessarily get, let's say, a degree in machine learning or you haven't worked in a, in a, in a, as a machine learning engineer for a bunch of years, um, this is a way to sort of get a lot of that knowledge, a lot of that expertise. And, you know, I know Patrick and I, we've both done a bunch of courses online. Um, um, and, and so it's, it's, it's a really good way to sort of boost, um, you know, your knowledge and your skills in a particular area. Yeah. I mean, I did tons of online classes uh, when I first started working and um, you know, for me, being part of a class, I mean, it's it's always interesting. But the curriculum, the the self-paced stuff, it works great um, sometimes. But sometimes having a here's what we're doing each week, marching through their curriculum and and going through it, it's uh, very similar to how a you know just a normal university class works. In fact, you know, feeling like it's almost exactly the same uh, is just a comfortable thing, a good way to learn. Uh, and learning from professors who you know that's that's their thing. That's they teach, they help others to learn, and having access to it, doing the assignments. Uh, it, it really helped me uh, go from, you know, where my undergraduate left off to, you know, to just kind of bootstrapping into more specifics, higher level things, uh, things that were more pertinent to my job at the time. I, you know, I, I hardly recommend people uh, taking classes, continuing education from a from a college. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I think getting it through a university is is actually a really, really stellar. I mean, it's really awesome that universities are starting to get into this. And um, you, know, you know that there's going to be sort of quality lectures and professors. There's, there's, you know, there's a very strong brand behind any any sort of major university. And you know, usually Irvine's one of the top universities for CS. So, um, so they, they, you know, they've been around since about 1962, I think. And they, uh, you know, they have, uh, you know, they've been around a long time. They've been doing, you know, they've been teaching a long time. They've been teaching online a long time. And so it's a good place to um, to go and get get this kind of education. Yeah, if you're interested, uh, I think they're still doing enrollment for some late classes for spring, but summer's upcoming. And uh, as we've been talking about this whole episode, I mean, I think everyone has uh, extra time at home these days. Oh my and gosh! Yeah. If, you, <laughs> if you're interested, you can check it out at ce.uci.edu/programmingthrowdown, and uh, we'll put the link in the show notes, of course. Um, but once again, that's ce.uci.edu slash programming throwdown. Yeah. And if you uh, do sign up and take any courses, you know, we'd love to get feedback. You know, please write us in. Tell us what you think of it. Um, you know, we could pass it on to them. But also for us, it's really good to know, um, you know, what you thought about that, uh, you know, folks out there who are listening. So. All right. Back to the show. Uh, so. So. So, yeah. So what makes something Bayesian 
or one of the one way to explain it is, you know, when you're building when you're building that generative system, um, if you build it on top of random numbers, right now you have kind of a generative model. So, for example, um, um, so for example, if 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 we go to our to our sort example, um, so we're generating some random numbers um, to sort and and to compare the outputs of them. Um, if we know the function that's generating those numbers, so for example, the numbers that we're sorting, um, we're generating them from a Gaussian distribution, right? If we have the, getting back to our earlier topic, if we have sure. the probability density function for this generator, um, now we have, instead of, instead of needing, when we do analysis, instead of needing the list of numbers, we could just think about it in terms of, okay, this is the distribution that I'm sorting. And then all of the models and the math afterwards could be done on the distributions. And your output could also be another probability density function. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not sure I'm following exactly. So you're generating a bunch of random numbers from, from let's say a Gaussian and you still want to sort it. Uh, are you saying oh, that yeah. you change so, the algorithm? Yeah. Are you no, change I, the sorting algorithm or I, change? Yeah. Your, well, I'm yeah. saying let's say we just want to do some analysis. Um, on the sort. So yeah, the actual sort is going, is not going to be a Bayesian, you know, system because it's, 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 uh, it's kind of a deterministic thing. But, um, but just in general, I think if you start with sort of random numbers and then you, instead of applying things on each of those elements that we've drawn from the distribution, you could also imagine, you know, doing functions on the distribution itself. So let's take this, this Gaussian distribution. And let's maybe multiply it by a constant and add it, add it to this other Gaussian distribution. And if you do that enough times, you get some kind of linear regression. Um, and so that, that output then of, of that process also becomes a distribution. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the main point is you, you can actually uh, recapture the distribution from the random numbers. Um, and that's always very interesting. I was, uh, I've been reading like a lot of, well, a, a few months ago, I was reading a whole bunch of the, um, the, the COVID papers, you know, the coronavirus papers. And the mm-hmm. one, the one that I was really interested in on March, you know, March 10th, um, was how long does it take for someone to get it? Because I walked into the Foursquare office on March 6th and no one was there. And I was like, what's going on? Is it a weekend? Did I screw up? And uh, <laughs> like, haven't you heard somebody got the COVID and we all have to quarantine for two weeks? And that was back then. Nobody was quarantining. So I was like, it was kind of like, I, I felt like I was personally being punished. But, uh, <laughs> but, um, after five days, you know, I, I was like, okay, I'm not sick. None of my coworkers are sick. Um, and what's the probability that, 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 that we got it or any of us got it? And as I looked into the numbers, I, lo- I found one paper that was really good, which, um, you know, took the discrete data of, okay, these are, uh, these are example of people who know when they were exposed, know when they started exhibiting symptoms. Um, and so they constructed a probability distribution on, you know, when you start exhibiting symptoms from when you were exposed. And I noticed in the paper, which I liked, which gave me confidence in the paper, which, uh, you know, a lot of the papers that I've read over the last three months in this topic did, did not inspire as much confidence. But one of the things that they did was they checked a lot of forms for the distribution. So, so they checked they they checked to see if it was a Gaussian, but they also checked many other uh, forms, including, um, 
including distribution functions with fat tails and things like that. And they got similar answers each time when they reconstructed the distribution, which was, you know, hey, you have a median of getting this thing in like five days and set 97% chance uh, it'll come at you in, in 14 days. So uh, that that sort of inspired confidence from the from the data they got. And yeah, not, nobody at work at least got sick from work. So that was good. <laughs> I, I was pretty confident after five days, but my coworkers were still uh, not so confident. Yeah, I mean, the the... I think the the statistics, especially when it's rather early and there hasn't been enough time, uh, it's just very hard to get that right. I think a lot of people learned uh, the hard way that that uh, that fractions have denominators, right? And so, yeah. so you might have a thousand cases, but if you tested a hundred times as many people as uh, as the next place, then uh, that that obviously has a huge impact. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I like about Bayesian inference is it sort of tells me what my certainty is as I go. So if I'm uh, like, quote unquote, allowed to draw an inference early on, I'll know that. Um, and yep. because, you know, there'll, there'll be less uncertainty around my data. If I already have enough data, uh, if I don't have enough data and my uh, my probability is still spread all over the place, then I'll know I, I still have to wait. Yeah. And one thing you touched on is is this idea that uh, you, we have to fit a distribution. So, so, um, you know, we talked about the probability density function, but there's, there's a variety of different, um, functions that have really nice properties, right? So for example, uh, as we talked about, there's the Gaussian distribution or the normal distribution. Yeah. And, and that is this, this symmetric distribution that has a, a whole bunch of really nice properties. Now, uh, as we talked about the electricity example, you know, the real world, uh, uh, in the same way as the real world will never give you exactly 120 volts, it's also not going to give you exactly a Gaussian distribution either, right? Right. And so, and it could give you a distribution that is, and it probably will give you a distribution that is unlike any of the mathematical distributions. So, you know, a lot yeah, of work it has usually to, does. Yeah, a lot of work has to go into sort of, how do we sort of fit the data that we have to, um, you know, one or more or some composition of distributions? And that actually is a, itself a really difficult problem. Yeah. Um, one of the topics that I like talking about on this is, uh, is conjugate priors. I don't know if you've run into that, but, um, mm -hmm. uh, an example of a conjugate prior is a, is a beta distribution. Uh, a beta distribution is an uncertainty over a probability. So let's let me say it in a way that might make sense, uh, might make more sense intuitively. Like you have a coin, a weighted coin, and you don't know if the coin is weighted zero percent on heads or a hundred percent on heads. It's somewhere in between or equal to those two things. It's somewhere on a value from zero to one, and we don't know exactly where it is. Yeah, and weighted means it's it's cheated. It's right. It's, it's cheating in some way, but you don't know. Right. Right. So I mean. You could think of it as a coin or you could think of it as any uh, event that's repeated where I don't really know what the probability of this event, like I, I don't know what the probability of this event is. All I know is that it's repeated over and over and it's it's somewhere between zero and one. And so a beta distribution represents an uncertainty over that. And a beta distribution, like a Gaussian distribution, it has, um, you know, it has two parameters it, and, you know, you, you can say it has a mean and it has a variance and all that. Um, but the really cool thing about the beta distribution 
is that if you have a beta distribution to represent the uncertainty over the 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 weight of the coin, if you flip the coin a bunch of times and then run through Bayes' rule and then calculate the updated distribution, the updated distribution is also a beta distribution, just with updated parameters. And it's actually very easy. You just add the number of heads to one parameter and number of tails to the other parameter. So the math all works out and you you don't even need any, you know, complicated, um, you know, uh, uh, calculations you don't need to you don't even need to use a computer <laughs> you can just yep, uh, yep. figure out what the new and so um sometimes those are are really good to look at uh you know there's there's beta uh dirichlet which i've written a bunch about and, and gamma and then like you said oftentimes you want to you know in in some cases you want to check you know hey could this be some pathological distribution and you should often throw that into the mix to to check because some of the biggest um mistakes uh not mistakes but like errors that people can make is like you know sort of uh trying to fit uh your data into a certain distribution when uh it doesn't fit and sometimes you have to for simplicity so you have to kind of get like a an intuition for when this is going to be a problem but it's usually a problem for uh, in instances where you have data where uh you know one day it could blow up and uh, everything is everything's affected. I'm trying to you know uh, think of a, a, an exact answer, and you know, you could sort of like you get an intuition for which is which. Um, you know, yep. for example, like the attribution. I'm not worried about one ad uh, all of a sudden. Well, I don't know. There could be an ad that could be extremely effective, but I'm sort of I, I don't expect it to be out of a range of like an order of magnitude. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is, 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 you know, these distributions, uh, are shaped by what we call hyperparameters. So for example, looking right. at the normal distribution, um, it's symmetric. So, so that's, you can't vary that, but you can still vary basically how much you want to, let's say, stretch it. And so we call that the, the variance of the distribution. And you could also vary where the top of it is, right? That we call that the, uh, uh, I guess the basis or the base, or there's there's different yeah. words for that, but the the center so of the distribution, the mean. Yeah. the mean of the distribution works. Um, and so those are hyperparameters, right? So let's say you have um, you have some some data, and you can fit uh, a normal distribution. Let's say the data is bimodal, which means you actually see two normal distributions in your data. So imagine it has sort of these two humps, right? Right. So um, so now you can say, well, there's a, a, a Gaussian distribution that's generated this data, but sometimes the mean is this or sometimes the mean is that. And so you can have another distribution um, which tells you when you should use one mean or the other. Right. So you could have, let's say, a Bernoulli distribution. And when it's heads, you use the one mean and when it's tails, you use the other mean. And so then. In this way, it becomes kind of this chain or this, 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 you could look at it as a graph where distributions are informing other distributions. And so you can even introduce, you know, external data. So for example, yeah, when it's sunny outside, it's much more likely to be this distribution, this normal distribution. When it's raining outside, it's more likely to be this other one. And it's just that the data you have was a combination of sunny and rainy. And so that's why you have this bimodal uh, distribution. But it turns out if you add this this extra feature, 
um, now you can explain it in a much better way. That's predictive. Yeah, yeah, and that's how these things kind of chain together. You can have, hey, uh, you know, which uh, which group am I in? Am I in group A or group B? And that's the first distribution between A and B. And then within A, okay, we have a a, a Gaussian. Within B, we have a Gaussian. Uh, there's a whole field called um, hierarchical models that's kind of based on that. And it's sort of like, okay, I'm in I'm in a subgroup, and then I'm in a larger group, and there are certain as there's certain um uh you know uh, th- there's there's certain properties that the larger group has and there's certain gra- properties that each subgroup has and as i get data how do i figure out you know what those properties are um and a, a good example of that is in election forecasting i interviewed on the local maximum uh, alex andora i think that was episode uh 99 if i remember correctly um yeah, so basically he does election forecasting. He's, he's in France. He's kind of like the 538 blog for, uh, for, for France. Oh, and cool. Yeah. And so, um, what, uh, uh, I'm trying to go to local max radio slash 99 to make sure, but I don't know. Uh, it's not, uh, not responding right now, <laughs> but, um, he, we talked about hierarchical models and, and the question is, okay, let's say I do a poll, um, from a single town and, I get a, a crazy outlier on that poll. And the way I talk about it, there's three things that could be going on. One, you could have just gotten a, a bad sample or you could have just gotten like a random, just it just happened to be that the random people you you hit, uh, it just fell in a in a weird way. That's like that one in a million or maybe not even one in a million shot where it's just it just randomly was an outlier and that does not reflect the data. Two, it could be that that town, something is going on in that town and people are really changing their minds. And three, it could be that this is a broader national trend. And so when you get that data, how do you tell? How do you tell which case it is? Or maybe it's a, it's a combination of those cases. And a hierarchical model, uh, hierarchical Bayesian model does a very good job of kind of uh, disambiguating between these and trying to figure out, okay, where does this fit in? Yeah, totally makes sense. Yeah, I mean, so... So you could actually have a distribution over all three of those hypotheses, uh, like I guess in this case a Dirichlet distribution, and um, and over time and with more uh, surveys and more samples, you would become more and more confident about about some mixture of those hypotheses. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is episode ninety-eight, by the way, but uh, not ninety-nine. But um, it's uh, it's. Yeah, it's, it's oftentimes, I mean, one of the things that, uh, I might think of it is, okay, let's say each town has a, and, and again, you could break it up by, by town, you could break it up by, uh, age and gender and demographics and all these things, but to be, um, you know, to, to, to simplify, let's say each town, let's say it's a two candidate election, and you just have a beta distribution over what the probability for each person is in those towns. Then the county, you say, okay, each town in that county, we're going to have a different beta distribution, and the uh, the hyperparameters for that data beta distribution are are drawn from another distribution for that county, and then so on and so forth. And you go up to the to the to the state level, um, and so yeah. that's yeah, and that's that that sort of disambiguates. And oftentimes in these cases, it's it can be very intractable because like, do I want to break it up by geography? Do I want to break it up by demographics? Do I want some combination? And that's where a lot of kind of trial that that's where you're getting into, you know, the machine learning curse of dimensionality. <laughs> I'm just trying to um, 
you know, trying to include, trying to figure out which variables are, are best to include. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of it, it kind of ties into the multi-arm bandit stuff again, where where you know, just to, to give an example, if you if you flip a coin once and you get heads, uh, there there's just a lot of uncertainty there. If you flip it ten thousand times and it 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 is roughly fifty fifty, then you're much more certain. Sure. And so you have what's called tighter bounds, right? And so as you try to come up with more and more features to explain some phenomena. So, you know, the, the phenomena is the survey results. And as you come up with more and more features to, to better explain that phenomena, you also are adding more and more uncertainty because, you know, maybe you've only surveyed one 18 year old, uh, from, you know, the Lyon province from, from Nice. Uh, and so, and so now you've gotten so specific that you've blown up the variance. And so, so you're constantly kind of struggling with this, uh, uh, we'll call it bias variance trade off, right? And so that's one of the reasons why acquisition functions are really important. And so, so we could kind of dive into that. I mean, a lot of these, a lot of these systems, and one really cool thing about Bayesian in general is it's, it's, because it comes from kind of the signal processing world, you know, a lot of it is designed to be iterative. Um, so it's not like uh, collaborative filtering and some of these other methods where they're just concerned about this one shot. Like you you generate this probability of hot dog and then that's it, you're done. Um, but in this case, you can actually have an acquisition function which says, you know, um, who should I survey next? to get the most possible signal and and going back to the casino example right like which which casino should i visit to either learn more about it or 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 make make the most money um and so so actually you know bayesian a lot of bayesian methods um directly address the acquisition function which is so another thing that isn't isn't covered really well but is also really important yeah to expand on that a little bit a, a real world example from uh, for square attribution. Uh, well, in this case, it wasn't so much an acquisition function where we were trying to decide who to survey because we have our panel of data, but it was more like trying to decide which data to throw out because we had too much. It was very expensive to put all of it in our model. And we were trying to figure out, let's use Starbucks as an example. I don't think Starbucks is a, is a, is a client, but, um, let's use Starbucks as an example. We're trying to figure out, okay, what is the probability that any given user uh, or for every user and, and their data and, and information about them or what is the probability that they're going to visit Starbucks on this particular day. And we had that probability set up for every person in our system. Um, and so that's a, that was a pretty big model to train. And uh, we had examples of days where people did visit Starbucks and da- days where people didn't visit Starbucks. And as you can imagine, there are a lot of examples of, a person days where Starbucks was not visited. There are a lot of examples right. where Starbucks was visited, but there, there's a, a, a huge multiple of days where Starbucks wasn't visited. And so we did a bunch of stuff where we threw away some of that data uh, so that we got less, you know, uh, uh, that we, um, that we, uh, that we can then calculate our, our probability function, which was a kind of a logistic uh, regression on, um, on a, on, on, a, on a smaller data size. And we, again, use Bayesian inference to say, okay, how do I get these original parameters from the original data set, given that we 
probabilistic, probabilistically threw away a bunch of this data and we were able to, to calculate that. That's like a bias corrected logistic regression. It's a very interesting, uh, problem to tackle. And yeah, again, save a lot sense. of money, save a lot of, uh, you know, uh, calculation time and, and programming cycles and AWS costs and all that. Yeah. Yeah. True. It's true. And even if you had infinite of those, you run into this other issue where, um, the model will spend energy based on the loss. So, for example, um, the example you gave is great. You know, the odds that someone goes to Starbucks specifically, um, you know, if you look at everyone on Foursquare, including all the folks who have never been to a Starbucks, um, the odds that, that someone goes to Starbucks is probably way less than 1%. Yeah. And so if the model, let's say, doesn't, isn't a very, very large model, it doesn't have a lot of free parameters, then the model is just going to say no one goes to Starbucks ever. And it's going to be 99% accurate, right? And yeah. so, and so, so typically, you know, that's, that's one of the, the big challenges on the modeling side is, is how do we respect the sort of economics of the problem, right? Like, like why is saying no one ever goes to Starbucks bad? The reason is because it's a lot more valuable to predict when someone's going to Starbucks and get it right than it is to predict that this person's not going to Starbucks, right? Because yeah. if you know someone's going to Starbucks, you could send them, let's say, a coupon and you could get maybe $3 worth of value out of that. Um, if you know that someone's not going to Starbucks, that's kind of useless, right? Yeah, and yeah. so and, and so, more importantly, it was which okay. which people are going to be swayed by the ads, too, because we wanted to know who was going no matter what. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you need the uplift, right? So, yeah. so the, so, so you do all this, all these various tricks to, to make sure the model is as useful as possible. But because you've done that now, it's, it's uncalibrated. So now the model thinks that an average person goes to Starbucks, you know, every other day, um, right. because it's been given data that's skewed, right? And so then you have to do this calibration step where you build a, another kind of simpler model on top of that model, which is, which is given unbiased data. And you freeze that, that first model so that, you know, the first model is biased on purpose and you freeze that. But now you train this unbiased one afterwards. And, you know, I think a lot of this, you know, between sort of this bias variance trade off and, and, and the, 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 all the things downstream of that and this question of like, how do you subdivide the data and how do you gather new features? That's probably 90% of what a data scientist, uh, you know, will do in their day job. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, it's, um, some of this stuff can get quite, uh, quite involved and, um, oftentimes you have to take a deep breath and say, okay, let's, uh, let's start at the beginning and let's, let's do this step by step because, uh, well, in, in my case, and I think in a lot of cases, you often have sort of, uh, you know, a, a problem of explaining to the organization all of these issues, which uh, can be intractable as well, you know, management. Yeah, and all. yeah. So what is, uh, how do you deploy, you know, something like this reliably? Um, you know, and how do you know if you've deployed a bad apple? I mean, let's say the, let's say there's a data corruption um how do you kind of keep that from getting to people and, and how do you build sort of protection in case it does get out to people? Hmm. Well, uh, that's a, I'm, I'm trying to think if I have some good examples of that. Uh, you know, we definitely have a bunch of like, uh, you know, data sanity checks in all of our pipelines to make sure things don't shrink or grow. 
considerably between uh between between runs uh but honestly sometimes they're more sometimes they cause us more problems than they help and other times <laughs> other times <laughs> things have blown up uh anyway um but in terms of models um you know i i think you just look there's nothing that you can do if the data coming in is is just horrible, just completely like zeroed out or something, unless you sort of just have a check that the new, mo- that the new model is completely, um, you know, completely 180 degrees different from the old model. Uh, you know, oh, that's but, a really good point. Yeah. yeah. But so, so sanity smoke checks help a lot. Um, one thing that I talk about a lot that's been running on Foursquare for the last like, uh, six years in its current form, uh, but really eight years is the, the rating system. So if you go to Foursquare City Guide, you can search for venues and restaurants and bars and stuff. Remember, we used to go to bars, uh, yeah, back back when we were movie theaters outside. and things like that. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, um, so, uh, they had a one to ten rating and, uh, the algorithm on that is one of the biggest signals is sentiment analysis on the Foursquare tips, which are like these mini reviews that people write. And I built this in 2012 and then kind of revamped it in 2014 with uh, Stephanie Yang, who uh, I had on, on my show in episode three. And um, basically the, the sentiment analysis algorithm is based on people who have liked and disliked a venue explicitly, but also left a tip. And so we trained language models on that. And the the reason why this is my favorite example is that this thing gets has been getting retrained every week for the last six years. And it probably, I don't know, Foursquare isn't growing by a big percentage now, but uh, back in the day, like it used to get better over time. Like it would be better at doing new languages because uh, a certain language maybe didn't have enough data. But then when more people of that language started using Foursquare, uh, it got better and better at figuring out uh, whether something was positive or negative in that language. And so sometimes you can deploy something where it actually gets better over time instead of drifting. Um, yeah, which is really interesting. It's, it's, you have to, a certain number of things have to align. You have to be training on your own data. Um, and sometimes like, you know, it has to be something that doesn't change like that, that fast. I don't think, um, I don't think language, language does change, but in terms of what we were looking for, it doesn't change that much. Or if it does change, it's the introduction of new terms that it could easily learn, um, and not, you know, completely going opposite. But, mm-hmm. um, I, um, yeah, it's, it's always an interesting, <laughs> I don't know if I have a clear answer for you, but it's always an interesting architecture problem. Like, how do I build this thing to last? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's, it's definitely an open problem. I, th- I think, um, as you said though, you know, comparing to yesterday's model, having some expectation about drift and, uh, and sort of AB testing, or I guess AA testing, you know, this version versus the previous one. Um, is really the best you can do. I mean, there are some sort of counterfactual evaluation techniques, but um, uh, it's very, very hard to dial those in. Yeah, yeah, especially something like venue ratings, where how good they are is very subjective. Um, yep. And then if you yep. want to die, yes, there's no ground truth there. Uh, and then there... I guess we were using our own data for, and even though it seems like they've worked pretty well and they've held up over the years, uh, you know, people still say, oh, we enjoy these, you know, better than some of the other services that, that rate places. Um, but it, uh, I was trying to think out what, like if, if you go, um, if you go to the sentiment analysis, like, yes, we have, uh, 
we have training data that we have kind of ground truth there with people self-reporting, but it's not really always truth. So, and you know, there's spam and all that. So uh, there, there's a whole bunch of things that could go wrong. Yeah, totally makes sense. What do you think about, um, you, you know, I, I used to do, Patrick and I both used to do a lot of image processing. Uh, this is probably like a decade ago. Um, you know, and back then that was before deep learning was a thing. And so, it was a lot of kind of, you know, SVM or sorry, SVD and these other sort of unsupervised, like these decompositional models, um, a whole bunch of human engineering. And um, and then deep learning came and just ate all of it. Right. And yeah. so um, I remember you know, when I was in, at NYU, I took uh, uh, a class in, in machine learning and the professor was Jan LeCun. I didn't know who he was. Uh, but now he's at Facebook and all that. And, uh, he showed us, I think it was the first day, uh, he showed us like a, a camera that, he, like a little eyeball shaped camera that he pointed at things. And then on the screen, it said what he was pointing at. Like it would be like keys, phone, uh, desk, you know, and I'd be like, and it was just, uh, it was just amazing. And now that technology, um, is, is everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so and so deep learning kind of just ate all that feel like like no one has to know about Gabor filters or um, these Gaussian pyramid models or a lot of these um, color contrast models. I mean, they just take the raw pixels, throw it into this deep net, um, and so you're starting to see this emergence and 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 it's been going on for a few years now of, of sort of this deep Bayesian models where we're basically uh, you know, it'll be some deep learning where the last layer is a Gaussian process um, that has just priors that nobody knows. Um, or you, you start to see, um, like another example is, um, you know, just you, you start to see variational inference pop up everywhere, um, like this reparameterization trick pop up everywhere. And so they're, they're all these sort of black box models where nobody really knows what these distributions are in the same way that nobody really knows what's going on in the, in the deep learning system. Um, but it can handle, you know, enormous amounts of data. And so do you think that, that sort of deep learning is going to eat a lot of the kind of, uh, you know, Bayesian math and it's just going to become deep learning? Well, so first of all, I think some parts of deep learning are based on Bayesian math. So you, you have, um, to, to some degree or another. So it's not necessarily that it's going to eat it, but I think that there is always going to be a market for the simpler models. Um, you're never going to reach a point where people are like, oh, linear regression and logistic regression, don't even learn about those. Those are, um, those are, those are obsolete. Uh, no, I think the, I think those types of things are always going to be kind of the, the bread and butter, you know, first, first step uh, to try to wrap your head around the problem and figure out uh, and to be interpretable and try to figure out, you know, what what is really going on, what the what the um, what the causal mechanisms are that a deep model can't necessarily tell you. And deep learning is really good at something like um, image recognition or speech recognition where it's just you just have so such complicated levels of abstraction that it could do really well. Uh, but I, I don't think it eats everything. Um, I think, I think these complex models are very important and they're going to do a lot of things, but eats everything. No. Yeah. I totally agree with you. Yeah. I think, 
I think, um, yeah, I mean, if you, if you think about it, actually, I mean, imagine you have, let's say, a click probability model that's a deep model. It's it's still a logistic regression at the last layer. It just has this yeah. sort of this embedding, this composition that 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 sort of transforms the data into something that can be uh, learned in a linear space. Right. And yeah. so it might just be that, you know, we do this composition and, and we have to just cross our fingers there but but what comes out of that that embedding that comes out of that it, it could still be we could still do some interpretable ml on top of that right and sometimes sometimes these click models uh or this marketing data is not as deeply uh complex with layers of abstraction as is image recognition so sometimes you can throw deep learning at it and you can get small uh small wins but uh not always there's they're often small wins and not big wins um but uh for 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 lots of effort um but hey i'm sure google will use it uh to kind of squeeze an extra 0.1% efficiency out of their out of their clicks and uh you know get translates to some huge amount of money but yeah, might not yeah. might might not be practical on the scale of like a small business yeah, I mean, I think it's probably worth mentioning the reparameterization tricks. It's that's something that most people could do um, uh, with really any data without having to fit distributions. And the idea is, is um, you know, as we talked about, the the distributions are defined by these hyperparameters. Um, and so you could imagine, like, like if you imagine, just let's take the uh, logistic regression example. Um, you, know, you have a set of labels, so you have a set of you know coin tosses, and you want to have some function that takes in I don't know the wind and some other parameters and decides whether the coin tosses will be biased in one way or the other. Um, and that's but that's going to give you a single probability, or the hot dog not hot dog for example, it's going to give you a single probability like 0.9 or right. something. Um, if you want a distribution, um, one way to do it is to say Okay, instead of uh, trying to get the actual answer, so so the way that point nine comes about is when we train the model, you know, we give it a picture of a hot dog, and we say this is one. We give it a picture that doesn't have a hot dog, and we say this is zero. Right. And so over time, it it trains on that. But you could also you could give it you know a batch of pictures and say, you know, in this batch of pictures. 90% of them are hot dogs uh, and, and not necessarily tell them, uh, tell the model, um, you know, which, which, uh, uh, which ones are which, you know, you could do that and it will still learn. It will take longer because it will have to sort of, you know, tease apart from these batches, which ones are actual hot dogs, but it would work. Does it have, uh, does it have multiple such batches? Like to say in this batch, 90% are hot dogs and this batch, 10% are hot dogs. Exactly. Just, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so if we give it enough of these batches and let's say we shuffle in between the batches, it'll still learn, even though we only have one loss or one, you know, bit of feedback for the entire batch. Right. Um, and so, and so if you can follow that, then you could imagine saying this batch has this distribution and Mr. Model, I want you to match this distribution. So instead of saying this batch has a 0.9, you could say this batch has this Gaussian distribution, you know, match it. And the next batch will have a different Gaussian distribution. And, and over time, 
you know, it will start to uh, fit all of these different distributions over all these batches. And so this is a nice little trick you can use. Um, it's called the reparameterization trick. And so you can actually get a distribution out of, out of uh, pretty much any model. Um, and that's, that's, I feel like that's a kind of, you know, lesson 101. You know, we could do much better than that, but that's one way where anyone can get into uh, models that, that output distributions. Yeah, I, I haven't heard of the reparameterization trick. I'll have to look into it, but I think what's been so the, the way I always break it down with, with Bayesian inference is however the data comes in, even if the data has been mixed and matched and filtered and all that. Um, and so long as I know how it was done or I have, uh, you know, some hypothesis as to how it was done, you could always come up with a Bayesian model on that and learn something. Yep. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think, uh, um, yeah, I think, you know, and having the uncertainty lets you do some really, really cool things. Like imagine, yeah, against problems dependent, like Foursquare is actually a good example. Let's say, let's say we're recommending restaurants to somebody. Um, and, and let's say we don't know whether they like Thai food or not. Well, maybe we should do what's called the upper confidence bounds, which is just a fancy way of saying, you know, if the distribution is really wide, we want to be more likely to choose this item. So so Foursquare doesn't know if I like Thai food. They show me an advertisement or they suggest a Thai food restaurant that's nearby. And if I cancel it or if I tell them, don't show me this again, well, that tightens the bounds. Now they know something. And so next time, maybe they'll try you know, Chinese food, right? On the flip yeah. side, it could be that I really love Thai food but I always go to the same place. And so I haven't looked for Thai food on Foursquare. And so by taking that chance, Foursquare, you know, if I do, maybe I click on it and I go to that restaurant, uh, that really opens up this huge array of possibilities that, that, that didn't exist before. Right. And so that's where, you know, showing the upper confidence bound of something can, can, can give you this nice mix of learning. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, using the information you learned at the same time. Yeah. Lots of ways to slice and dice the data. Yeah, <laughs> totally. If yeah. I could put it one way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I think and, and, and having the, the probability and the uncertainty, yeah, opens up tons of opportunities. I feel like this is something that a lot of even big companies like Google, uh, you know, and Facebook and these other large companies are, are just starting to get their hands around this. They have these very, very complicated models, but then they all output a single number and you're kind of limited in what you can do with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a constant struggle of, you know, the, the data scientists often have more information than the product managers or the, or the customers want to use. Um, and yeah, I, I get it. Maybe like in a consumer app, you don't necessarily want to start teaching people probability, but um, uh, you want to be ready with with all of the uh, with with the probabilities so that you can then make the changes to the um, you know you could then make product decisions as you go, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, like I want to increase or like maybe I want an indication that we're uncertain or maybe I want an indication that maybe you'll like this place because of this or, you know, all, all the different possibilities that we've been over a lot over the last many years at Foursquare for sure. So in Foursquare, do you have, uh, you know, like these, let's say, clear box or these like very interpretable models and you have sort of the 
heavy hitting deep learning model that squeezes the extra 1%? Do you do both of that? Or do you just focus on the clear box? Or like, how do you sort of strike oh. that balance? Uh, so let's try to figure out which, which product do we want to talk about? The consumer product or attribution? Um, so let's, we could talk about attribution for a bit. Um, attribution was, you know, we had a bias corrected logistic regression, like I said, which sort of tried to figure out what, uh, the likelihood of someone visiting a place given what day it is and given information about them and when they visited before and all that. And then we compared what happened, uh, when they didn't see the ad to when they did see the ad. And then we used a Bayesian model to come up with ad lift. That was a few years ago. Um, more recently, uh, last year, Foursquare, uh, bought a company placed, um, which only did location based attribution. And so, uh, you know, the, we, we found that we kind of did it the same way, but now the Foursquare attribution team is like, I don't know, 20 data scientists. And I, I've sort of, I, when I was doing it, it was like me and two other people. And now we're like, okay, well, leave it to, we've got this group, uh, in Seattle who are very good doing it. So I don't have as much insight into it, but I assume, uh, it's, um, I assume it's similar. Um, but some of the models, we had a logistic, regression model on the top layer, but some of the bottom layers were actually a bit more complicated. So for example, uh, one of the things that might affect whether you visit a place or not is your age and gender, you know, wouldn't you agree? Uh, but we yeah. didn't have everyone's age and gender. And what we did was for the people who we did have their age and gender, we built a model to predict what it was uh, given the places that we visited. And we, I, I did this fun thing where I revealed to the company, like everyone's, uh, everyone's gender, uh, probabilistic gender. And I was, nice. I had to be very careful. Like, you know, uh, it's just a model. This is not, you know, telling you, um, which gender you actually are. It turned out that most of the people who were misgendered by the model were, uh, you know, married people who were doing things with their spouse. Uh, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, and I found out, like, I was 99% male, but I, I also found out interesting things, like, it wouldn't be so much uh, if I didn't go to, to Best Buy, which is, like, uh, across the street all the time, then it would be more like 70%. Does going into a, a Best Buy make you more male? Of course not. It's just a model, right. guys. Calm yeah, it's down. not causation. But, uh, it's yeah, correlation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but, um, no, then we were able to use the output of this model as an input to the attribution model. We didn't just say, uh, which gender are you? We actually used the percentage output from the model uh, into and, and plugged it into the new model directly. So uh, we had these layers. And the, and the age and gender model was a little more complicated. I don't think it was deep learning, but it was like it was gradient boosted trees. So something a little bit, a lot more, it was a lot more nonlinear than just, um, you know, a logistic regression. Yeah, totally makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, from from what I've seen, it's it's um it's always this struggle. You know, you have you have the the super complicated model squeezes out the extra percent, but um, no one can interpret it, and so you build all these simple models. But then you know, if there's any skew or bias at all, then you're kind of you're informing your product managers uh, based on one model, but then your actual system is using a different one, and um, that that's uh, that's always difficult, right? Uh, sometimes it sort of uh, it sort of evens itself out. So, for example, the the gender model, we're using the output of that to predict whether you're going to visit a place. Um, and so the the visit prediction algorithm 
is just using this input. It doesn't know that it's a gender prediction. It just knows that it's a it's a feature. And so it could use it however it wants. And even if the gender prediction is off, the uh, the, the layer on top of it, the visit prediction, kind of takes what it can from that. Uh, and so yeah, we, don't, we don't have to worry about whether it's entirely accurate on predicting gender or not. Yeah, yeah, totally. And if you have the uncertainty of the gender, that could also go into the model. So it could say if if yeah. if the gender isn't certain, then doesn't matter what number it is, we'll just throw it out or something. Yeah, that's that's exactly what we did. Or in in our case, if it was like fifty fifty, I think we have a few. I, I don't know what what. There's a number of things you could do. You could just uh you know input a point five as a real number. That's the feature. Or you could just say um you know. Uh, pick, uh, if it's whatever the probability is, uh, sample from that and give me the, the sample value, either one or zero and do that a few times. There's a lot of things you could do. So what are you doing now? So you've worked on so many different parts of Foursquare. I mean, we've talked about several of them just in the show alone. And, and now you're at the innovation lab. What do you do there? Right. So I, um, Every once in a while, I get to do a statistical model, but right now, I'm really just working with our founder, Dennis Crowley, and uh, we're trying to use Foursquare's core tech to put out new apps that sort of uh, inspire, show off the company's technology, and so it's a nice change of pace um, to uh, you know be able to essentially work on the fun stuff. We had a really great product ready to go. Uh, for and, and it was called uh, Marsbot Audio, where you would walk around the city. And one of the things that Foursquare can do is it can tell whether you're walking past a store, like when you walk right past a place. And so we can trigger an audio file to play when you walk past something. So we have like sound effects, we have text to speech, cool. and we have you could even upload your own audio. And then you know whenever someone with the app walks by the place you set it at, they'll hear it. And so that was really cool. It was ready to go for March 11th. And we were like, are we going to be finished? Are we going to oh, be finished? March 11th. And on March 10th, we were like, it looks like we're going to finish for tomorrow. And then the country shut down. So, <laughs> so we kind of um, pushed that back uh, six months or so. I really, really hope to get this out though, as soon as we can, because the tech is ready and it's really cool. Uh, but that sounds um, awesome. You, one of yeah. the things I've been thinking a lot about is, is I think what you're working on falls right into this is, is how to sort of reboot people's habits, right? So, so imagine yeah. someone has, uh, is in the habit of going to the movie theater once a week. Um, you know, it has to be some way to sort of reboot that habit when things open back up. And I think something like this could be pretty cool where, you know, if it could kind of, um, you know, kind of like encourage, uh, uh, almost like a uh, like a fitness tracker, but for fun, you know, like just to help people kind of recover their social life. I know, I know. It's um, it's been a little. I, I'm not happy with the way the industry has gone. I, I feel like a lot of these consumer apps. Uh, one of the things that attracted me to Foursquare was how 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 positive it was as a as a as a social network and as a tool to like be present and do things in the real world. Um, you know, Foursquare, you know, is not one of the big tech companies right now. And I feel like a lot of consumer technology has gone in uh, in a darker direction that maybe we don't like. And now um, over yep. the next three months, I, I, I feel like, you know, I, I want people to get out again. I want people to have a good life again. And I feel like people are saying, oh, no, no, that's evil. We have to work on contact tracing apps. We have to work on, you know, apps to tell you which friends are out to kill you. And I'm... I, <laughs> 
I'm, I'm not too happy with that. I'm really hoping, uh, I feel like I'm, uh, I'm, 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 my thinking is against the grain here, but, um. Well, I think it's a I've, great place. Uh, it, it's a great, it's a great, uh, thing for an innovation lab to be working on because it's, it's sort of the next frontier, right? I mean, getting through COVID is, is frontier one, but, but trying to rebuild, you know, the social infrastructure, I mean, that's going to have to happen. And so thinking about yeah. that now is really good. Yeah, yeah. So over the last few months, we've been working more on, you know, <laughs> data sets for, uh, you know, coronavirus, essentially uh, not not for the virus itself, but to see which places are coming on and offline at different times. You know, re- re- there's a Foursquare recovery index at visitdata.org. But, uh, yeah, pretty soon we'll we'll return to these, I hope. Cool. And so, so working at Foursquare, can you kind of walk us through, I um, mean, you know, we have a lot of folks who are, let's say, in college right now. They are looking for internships. They're looking for jobs. But even more than that, uh, they want to know kind of what it's like to, 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 to work at a company like Foursquare. Could you kind of like walk us through kind of what a day in your life is like? Yeah. Well, one of the things that I've learned over the last 10 years is, uh, don't get too comfortable because, uh, once you are, uh, things are going to shift under your feet pretty quickly. And um, that's, you know, so whatever the day in my life is now is, well, it sure is. It certainly isn't the same as what the day in my life was four months ago back in February. <laughs> right, and yeah. it certainly wasn't what it was, you know, two years ago. I, I'd say um, the, the, the best case for Foursquare was when we were, you know, w- when we're working on these labs projects and it's just, uh, three or four people talking every day, working on the whiteboard, trying something out, uh, making progress, you know, um, building something into the app and then returning, uh, and then trying to, to go out and use it and then, uh, and then returning and then, you know, uh, trying it again. Um, f- uh, attribution, uh, yeah, on the things that I enjoyed was actually like coming out with these models and selling these models to the company. And even even going on some sales calls and trying to explain, you know, how they work and why, you know, certain ads are seeing lifts and certain aren't. Um, there was a lot of issues, you know, and, but sometimes, you know, there are issues on those teams when, you know, uh, certain companies wanted custom things done that the, we as engineers didn't really think made a lot of sense. And you're kind of kind of pressured by the sales team into that. That stuff happens as well. Sometimes, you know, you run into cases where. Uh, the, the, the company's kind of reaching, you're excited about a product, but the company kind of reaches a dead end or deprioritizes your product. And for someone, well, even for someone who's been in the industry for a long time and, and, but also for someone new, like that's always a very disappointing, uh, point part of working in this field. I don't know if you'd agree. Yeah, um, totally. But yeah. Yeah. That is the number like, one, uh, complaint. Yeah. I'm on a, I'm on a research team, uh, like an applied research team. And and the number one source of frustration is when, you know, we have something that all of the math looks great and it's headed in all the right direction, but but the product changes and the demand disappears. Yeah, yeah. Um, sometimes that happens. Sometimes sometimes the leadership doesn't see it doesn't you know, sometimes it is very valuable, but uh, the leadership in the company either doesn't see it or is a focused elsewhere. Um, and then sometimes. But, you know, it, it the, the, there's a plus side to that, too, is when you do ship something and you get something out and either it's, you know, 
either it's on the back end business to business that you know is bringing a lot of value or it's on the consumer side and people are loving it and telling you about it. Like there's nothing better than that. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. So is Foursquare hiring like full time? Are they doing internships with with the whole COVID thing? Are they going to do fall internships? Things are a little bit up in the air at Foursquare because, uh, again, you know, we bought uh, we, we bought placed in last year and this year. Uh, we bought or merged with another company called Factual. So there's a lot of integrating these companies. Very, uh, you know, it's a, uh, there's, there's a lot of moving pieces at Foursquare right now. So I don't exactly know uh, what the internship situation at Foursquare is like. But Foursquare.com/jobs you can go to. If I were looking for a job, I'd also like uh, Union Square Ventures is is one of the VC fund uh, one of the VC companies that funds Foursquare, and they have. Uh, a job board for like all of their companies and uh, they invest in a lot of cool companies. So I often go to their oh, job cool. board. I often, sometimes I, I first show people, this is the four square job board. Let's see if your job is here. If it's not there, then I jump to the USV job board because there's a lot of uh, cool, there's a lot of cool companies in there as well that are kind of a similar size, uh, similar philosophy. Uh, so, so is, is Foursquare on this uh, remote work uh, bandwagon or, or are most of the folks in New York? Um, we are remote right now and I don't know where we're going. <laughs> yeah, that's personally, true. <laughs> personally, I really hope to get back into the office. Uh, I just feel like some of the creative work that we do has to be face to face. I don't need mm-hmm. the open office with 300 people, but having like a small group of uh, you know, three to seven to 10 people get together and solve problems is way more efficient than everyone in their apartment with either, you know, with delivery people coming or their kids screaming at them or whatever, their dog, whatever's happening in the background. Yeah. Uh, it, it doesn't, um, in my opinion, it's not working as well, or at least in order for it to work as well, we, we'd have to, like, none of us have our, our, Apartments, particularly in New York City, like uh, optimized for this. So it's yep, it's yep. not. I, I really hope to get back. I don't know what the situation is going to be. There are people who are saying let's never go back. I I don't know who's going to win. Uh, yeah, honestly, it's it's it's. I don't think anyone does. I think. I mean, I mean, honestly, when Twitter, uh, Jack Dorsey from Twitter said uh, no one has to come back, uh, that was absolutely shocking. To, yeah. to the entire industry. I mean, that was seismic. I mean, that probably like, uh, Zillow stock price probably tanked when he tweeted yeah. that, right? I mean, uh-huh. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And, and, and I totally agree with you that, um, at least for now, they, there hasn't been the right mechanism for a while, actually. Uh, this is way before COVID when, when most of us were in the office. You know, we do have another team that's in, um, Seattle. And and what we did is we set up a television and they did the same where where when you look at the television, you see their their desks. Um, yeah. It's kind of weird. You know, it's it's kind of like a like literally like some kind of portal. Um, I don't I don't know if we need to see in everybody's homes either. I mean, there's a lot of personal things in people's homes yeah. and, and it's not um, and uh, it's it's I, I don't see how people don't recognize that. But yeah, exactly. I think there needs to be, um, yeah, there needs to be a new modality. I mean, like one way to do it is maybe, um, you know, we have some on the clock time where everyone's there and, 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 uh, you know, that is a time where the mic is always on or something. I, I honestly don't know. I, um, it's a totally uncharted territory, but, 
Um, we'll have to see have to see how that all goes. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I think if folks uh, out there listening are interested, um, is foursquare.com slash jobs or what was the other one? Union Union something? Oh, oh USV.com slash jobs. Oh, yeah. USV.com slash jobs. I think that's and, what it is. Let me check. And so, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes and we'll, we'll correct it either cool. way. Cool. This was this was awesome. Um, is there? Oh, we should talk about your podcast. Um, yes. So your podcast is called The Local Maximum. Every week. Which is which is awesome. For Every folks, week we reach a new local maximum. Hopefully <laughs> yeah, higher. Exactly. Hopefully higher than the previous local maximum, but not always. Uh, yeah, I think the name is great. Yeah, I think. Uh, uh, yeah, hopefully there's some. Uh, uh, you have some kind of mini batch going on or something where you can eventually reach a global maximum. You don't just get stuck. That will but, be the uh, last. The la- if I, if if there is a last episode, it will be called the global maximum. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Very cool. And um, so what do you talk about there? So I I generally talk about things that are interesting to me. I I'd say about 50 percent of my um, of my episodes are guest interviews. And so a lot of the guests are technology related, but I do branch out a little bit. I branch out to, uh, you know, professors probability and statisticians, of course, then pull more on like the data engineering side. But then I've also like talked to historians and um, and uh, other podcasters and, and, and comedians and, and things like that. So I am kind of all over the place there. Uh, one of the things that I like to do is take the concepts in sort of machine learning and, and Bayesian analysis and just sort of like apply them to either the news or to your everyday life. Um, and so uh, and, and by the way, if if you've made it this far, but you kind of are interested in Bayesian inference and you kind of want to look at it from, you kind of want the 101, the more basic ones. I have a lot of really good episodes for you to listen to. Like, um, uh, I think in the, in the hundreds, I've got, uh, let me check my archive for a second, but I know episode 105, I talked to a mathematician, Sophie Carr, talks a lot about Bayes' rule. Um, and then I had a few episodes after that about like, what is probability? Um, and so we do go into the philosophical side of things, but also I try to make it relevant to someone who is not a data scientist and not in tech. Like I can explain what overfitting and underfitting is. And then I ask, okay, who in your life do you know who is always overfitting? And, uh, people, uh, people tend to have an answer for that. So yeah, everyone's uh, got that one uncle, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and well, I think the example we have is often like, you know, toddlers can, can overfit, not always. Yeah. Um, yeah. but, or, and it's sometimes older people tend to, tend to underfit, but we can, there, there are examples. It's interesting to just have these prompts and come up with these, uh, these examples, or sometimes I just kind of, um, you know, uh, take a bunch of news stories that day and try to, uh, distill it down into a theme, like what's, uh, what's Occam's razor or what is, um, expected value or something like that. What inspired you to, to, I mean, it's a huge, huge undertaking to do a podcast. I mean, you do one show a week, which is, yeah. which is just, it takes an extraordinary amount of time. And so what inspired you to really start it and what kind of keeps you motivated? Well, I, I was trying to do, well, I had a, um, uh, radio show in college. This was back in like 2004 to 2006. And that was like the best part of my week was when I was doing that radio show. So, um, I knew I would enjoy it. I was trying to put more content out there. And at the same time, 
you know, I, you know, I, I had spent a summer kind of at NYU Future Lab talking to entrepreneurs and I was like, well, you know what? I think I would enjoy this. And I think no matter what project I do, I'm going to want to have like an audience to discuss it with and kind of a forum to learn about, you know, learn about new concepts and learn about issues and talk to people who I'm interested in, like authors. And so, I, I tried it. I did like a 10 episode challenge. Let's put on 10 episodes and see how it goes. And then after that, I just kept going. It was just a lot of fun. Um, every week is, you know, some weeks are easy. Some weeks it's a little bit challenging where I have to do a solo show, um, where, uh, the solo shows always take the most, uh, research and thought, even though it should be simple, right? I could just edit whatever I want. No one will ever know, but it's, uh, I feel like the, the solo shows are, are the hardest for me because when I'm interviewing someone, at least I could ask, ask for, for their content, their, their information. But it's, um, one week seems to be, uh, seems to be the sweet spot where if it's two weeks it, and I had something to say, it would like take too long for me to get the time to say it. Uh, but if it was more than a one week, it would just be completely overwhelming. Yeah, totally makes sense. Yeah, totally makes sense. I think, uh, yeah, Patrick and I originally was, were doing it, uh, bi-weekly and, uh, we switched to monthly. But yeah, I totally agree that, that, you know, if you find a piece of news early in the month, sometimes, um, you have to, you have to kind of throw it out and, and because, because so, you know, two weeks go by, uh, things become irrelevant really quickly. I mean, especially in 2020 where, yeah. uh, your entire lifestyle changes, it seems, almost week to week. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I'm almost going to go back to some of these episodes and relive it. It's like, do I want to do that? I don't know. But <laughs> but no, but uh, it, it did generate a lot of interesting episodes. Like uh, I did one episode, 115, all about the you know coronavirus models, uh, you know, what what was right, what was wrong, uh, what are they actually trying to do? And I had a lot of you know I talked to my friend who works in a in a hospital about recently about you know what his experiences uh, have been like over the last three weeks. So you know we have been um, talking a lot about uh, what's going on. I you know some episodes I feel like I just want to talk about a concept and ignore what's going on in the outside world. I've completely thrown that away. I think. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. We have this sort of, this, this bi, uh, polar or bimodal response to, to our current events. There's some folks who say, uh, you know, I just want to know about the topic. And there's other folks who say, I'm so glad you, you, you add color to the show and it's not just about tech all the time. Yeah. And so I think the compromise we finally struck was to put the timestamp of when the show topic starts. Um, that seemed to satisfy most people, but, um, but I totally agree with you that, that the idea of just ignoring the outside world, you know, like the, the entire world is burning down and you say, okay, today we're going to talk about the beta distribution. And right. right. <laughs> kind of yeah. odd, but yeah, hey, no, uh, I, I feel okay. like, I, I feel like, I, I know we're to wrap it up, but I feel like the, um, the purpose of the podcast is not to be a, uh, a, like a course that you take that's going to be evergreen. It's more like, Let's sit back. Let's have a conversation about issues that are important to us and let's talk it out. Let's talk about concepts that we know and then, uh, we'll get interested in things. We'll discover things. And then if we want to learn more, maybe we'll uh, do like, you know, look, look at a more formal course or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So it's, it's the local maximum is the podcast. Are you on? You're probably on, uh, like, like, uh, Google podcasts and yeah, Stitcher Google and all podcasts, of these things. Stitcher, Apple, Spotify. All, all Great. 
Yeah, if you if you don't have any of those or if you want more information, you can go to localmaxradio.com. And uh you know, Max, it was it was it was really awesome um to have you is I just realized your name is Max and it's local Max Radio. Is that on purpose or is that Well, yes. I realized it's a, it's, it's a triple <laughs> yeah. entendre, right? Because, yeah, that's right. It so, is. so there's the local maximum, which is the the probabilistic, well, it's the local maximum is a is both a optimization concept, a machine learning concept and a design concept too. So that's one meaning. There's also my name in it and also the local maximum. Well, it's you know location data. I'm all about that too. So oh, two yeah. meetings, two meetings is is wow. is one thing. But three meetings, that's when you know uh, that's that's very rare. Three. Yeah, you meetings. hit the jackpot. It's very clever. Cool. This is awesome. Yeah, I'm definitely gonna listen to some episodes. Uh, actually, right when we get off this, I'm gonna check this out because this is this is super exciting. And uh, you know, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, folks are just dying, chomping at the bit to know about anything AI machine learning. And so, um, you know, I feel like we covered a lot of really, really important ground here that, that, that any engineer can, can apply, uh, you know, even in their day to day work, which is, which is ultimately, I think, really, you know, useful and has high impact. Cool. It's great to be on the show and uh, to have this really fascinating discussion with you. We covered a lot of ground. There's things that I have to look more into now. Let's All right. Cool. <laughs> awesome. It was, it was really great talking to you. And then for folks out there, um, you know, thank you for uh, you know supporting us on Patreon. Uh, you obviously you know tough times for a lot of folks out there. Uh, you know we don't demand anything. All the content's totally free, uh, but we do really appreciate all the donations that goes to uh, you know our equipment and and we have some some uh, hosting costs and all of that. Um, so thank you again for your support. Uh, thank you for your emails. Uh, a lot of really good ideas keep coming in, and and you know our hope is to. I don't think we'll ever end the FIFO. Q, but our hope is to go through it and uh, try to answer as many questions as, as you folks have. And uh, we'll see you all next month. The intro music is AXO by Binar Pilot. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.